the the greatest scientists of the 20th century were all interested in totally weird shit like yeah. like all of them all all the cool ones and uh chances are if you like if you if you know their name they were probably interested in in some weird stuff Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Mind Matters. And uh, we've been kind of lazy lately, um, but we're back again in full force with the guys over there uh, having refurbished their studio or like moved to a, to a new studio. Uh, so it it all looks uh, gorgeous, may I just say. Oh, so congratulations well, on you. that. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. That's important. Yeah, let's um, let's give a little oh, let's give a little quick tour. Uh, okay, yeah. So here's yeah, there. Check that out. You like? Oh, for everyone listening and not uh, not watching, we've got um, in my background a guitar, a globe, some economics books, a little Star Wars toy, a meerschaum pipe of the Sherlock Holmes variety, and a little statue of a Roman general who shall remain nameless. All right, next, Adam or Ilan. So, and in this pared down and and simplified Zen-like background, we have a Renaissance sketch of Julius Caesar, as well as a um, a movie reference, a television show reference in the form of a screenshot <laughs> of uh, some sheet music, um, which might as well remain obscure. Yes, we'll, uh, one YouTube like <clears throat> to the first commenter that sight reads that and tells us the tune. Mm -hmm. And if you've watched the show, then it doesn't count. So next. And to wrap it up, we've got me and I have two pictures of Gurdjieff with a bust of Julius Caesar, a Bruce Lee action figure. <laughs> And uh, some books. <laughs> yes, awesome. very much fun. Yeah. So since we are in the in the lazy mood, uh, we thought uh, we just do a little roundtable today and uh, see what everybody's got on their tables and uh, or is working on or interested in at the moment. And uh, I personally have no idea. Uh, what this will, uh, how this will develop. Um, uh, yeah. So I'm very. I have curious. no idea what I've been doing or what I'm what I'm, what I'm planning. <laughs> or, yeah, so we'll just have to see where this yeah. goes. <laughs> sounds, We're trusting sounds the awesome. process. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah. So may I just uh, kick the ball off by asking who wants to, who wants to go first and uh, tell our esteemed uh, listeners and viewers. Uh, what you have been up to lately? Uh, -huh. well, I guess I can start, um, for, well, I'm, I'm still writing on, uh, like on Substack. So you and me both, Luke, we've got our, our Substacks, Luke talks and political ponderology. So we've been consistently active on there. We'll put the, I guess we can again, put the links in the description for any of our listeners who haven't checked out our, our Substacks where we each write at least weekly for the most part. And, and I guess recently, aside from 
the posts I've been doing on Lobachevsky's, you know, untranslated book up to this point, Logocracy, um, just the the same old, same old, just writing about anything evil related. And uh, well, that that kind of brings up the stuff that I've been I've been reading for the last few months. I haven't read a whole lot of books in the last few months, but the ones I've read have been pretty interesting. So. I wrote on Peter Turchin's War and Peace and War, and a book summarizing Catholic social teaching. And I'm currently reading a book called After the Natural Law by a, uh, I believe he was a, a lawyer, maybe even a legal professor, a law professor. Uh, I can't remember for sure, but it's his book on the the natural law and the classical worldview and how the how the classical worldview kind of went out of favor and how modern philosophy, like for the past 300 years, has kind of totally overturned the classical worldview. And it's so it's his defense of the classical worldview based primarily on, you know, the the Greek and Roman, the Greeks and Romans. So Aristotle, Plato, uh, the Stoics, and then as kind of um, codified by Thomas Aquinas, and then how pretty much all the philosophers of Thomas of uh, Thomas Aquinas have kind of chipped away at a, at a at a feature of the classical worldview, and in his in in this guy's view the uh, the classical worldview it's uh, it's like um, teleology and it's kind of anthropology it's view of the nature of humanity and the nature of of reality he argue, well he will argue in the in the final chapters that <clears throat> it makes a, a better defense for the actual practices that we have. In the in the modern world, um, than the actual philosophies that have uh, that kind of undergird our way of thinking, and specifically the kind of in in criminal law, for instance, uh, the, the notion of responsibility and the notion of free will. So we treat people as if they have free will, but our modern philosophies deny the fact. And so the classical worldview, um, he's saying, is actually still offers a better, um, you know, a better worldview for for modern people, like contemporary people, and that um, kind of a return to the natural law tradition. And maybe when I when I finish it, I'll have more thoughts um, because I think he makes makes a lot of really good points. I think that there are uh, well, there are, there are some things to get into there, but uh, I, I've, it's it's a great little book for even just a history of a history of the philosophical philosophical tradition from a certain point of view. So this is in the context of natural law and um, and the classical worldview and, and basically how it's changed uh, for the worse. So that's been pretty interesting. And I guess that's pretty much, it's pretty much all I've been reading recently. Other than that, um, you know, just little things here and there. Um, like uh, one thing I want, I want to recommend again is Michael McConkie's blog. He's had some really interesting things on his Substack uh, circulation of the elites, like on, uh, on the nature of federalism and populism and uh, the, the difference between like top up versus bottom down federalism and examples of that and how even a, how even a bottom up federalist system can kind of go bad. So he gives the example of well, the United States and the European Union and then examples of how it uh, the 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 benefits of a of a bottom up system when it's done more or less right. Um, giving the examples, some of the examples from the Canadian system and from the the Swiss system, yeah. and so that's been that's been really interesting. And he just finished up a, a six part series on <clears throat> the sociologist uh, 
Robert, I believe his name, Robert, uh, Robert Nisbet. And so I've got a couple of his books that I'll be checking out and we maybe we'll check them out at some point and talk about them. Seems like an interesting guy. What about you, Luke? I know you've been reading some really interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, just uh, to reiterate the, uh, the circulation of elites, the subject, I kind of followed that too and found it really fascinating. So, uh, should definitely, uh, check that out. Um, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, my kind of, uh, uh, overall research program, so to say, um, is a bit uh, along the lines of uh, Collingwood's uh, idea of, you know, like repressive positions and how they shape things. And um, this might be a bit in line with what you said about that book about natural law. So this idea to study like um, the history of ideas, basically to to see um, or to to kind of become aware of how much we we take for granted, right? In in our like modernist worldviews and philosophies and um and so what uh what i read first of all lately was uh, some nietzsche um beyond good and evil uh so that's definitely always a fun thing to do reading nietzsche um and uh he what i find interesting that he's he's kind of like an early postmodernist in a in a sense and uh uh so he kind of like breaks you know, like breaks the the, the paradigms and uh, uh, nobody's safe you know from his uh, from his wit and his uh, his ran rants uh, so that that's the, it's really a fun exercise so everybody uh, uh, who should definitely read Nietzsche just to to be inflamed and offended <laughs> it's good good stuff uh, and then um, yeah we talked about it a little bit before I. I found an interesting book uh, called uh, The Myth of Disenchantment, Magic, Modernity, and the Birth of the Human Sciences. And I, I, I stumbled upon it because I, um, I'm kind of interested in, you know, like the, the genesis or the development of uh, leftist thought, um, especially like... Uh, you know, during the during World War II and after World War World War II, like the Frankfurt School and all of that, since there are some like roots of you know like many modern ideas, leftist ideas, and even not just leftist ideas, but just general ideas that have like have become commonplace. And and uh, and since I grew up in in Germany, you know, very much in the in this milieu, you know, that was, that was shaped and shaping these things. Um, I'm very interested in, in that kind of thing. And, uh, and I had this kind of thesis for a long time that part of what drove uh, these movements, um, because I mean, it's easy to like, just bash them, right. And say, okay, these are like the proto wokeists and whatever, you know. Um, and I mean, there's a certain truth in it, you know, in the sense that, um, there are certain tropes or certain uh, roots in there that have later kind of like germinated uh, into into modern like wokeist ideas. But uh, there's obviously much more to the story. And and one thing uh, that I that struck me, you know, with my background and what I experienced and and, uh, and saw 
is that there's a part of what drove these guys, you know, was and and the success that they had as well was this uh, certain sense of disenchantment, right? Um, so basically a, a critique of like um, an overly like science-minded approach, a rationalist approach um, that can be very technocratic, very sterile, uh, very dead, so to say. And, uh, uh, and many of these people, you know, as we know, the left are usually more open in terms of personality traits and uh, and there's this whole like world of mystery of literature of art um of uh, mysticism uh even spirituality uh you know that that is also part of life right and and the 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 um ambiguity of things the uh you know that you cannot put everything in a box and and you know study everything uh, quanti in quantitative terms and and all of that so that was a big thing and uh, and that's how i stumbled upon this book and i found it really interesting because um he traces um a lot of like what what went on behind the scenes you know even uh during the enlightenment era and gives like tons of historical background he's kind of like a you know comes from the critical theory tradition himself so he's kind of like a postmodernist um so sometimes you have this odd little like jargon or like leftist trope in there you know that uh, uh, from today's perspective uh, you know you get kind of like ah <laughs> but uh you know when he talks about queering or you know or whatever um but this is this is really minor you know and uh and he does has done a, a just a, a splendid job like i mean there are like thousands of references and I mean, he just has read a lot and he, and he reads like 10 languages or whatever. So he really uh, did an impressive job there. And, uh, and there's, there are so many interesting tidbits uh, in there, like how, for example, the whole idea of the enlightenment was, you know, came only, it was basically in, an invention of, of the even the late 19th century, right? Um, I mean, that uh, people may, may have used it before, like in German, but uh, that wasn't like, you know, that is the period, you know, and with all the associated ideas we have now about it, but that only came much later in the in the late 19th century, basically. And in the Anglo of world, um, he makes the case that it even was only after World War II you know, that this um, word enlightenment uh, and the associated like ideas really were like invented. And, and that's something that you see very much in, in history, right? Um, where where people come up with these tropes that then get projected back in history and, and they're creating kind of a myth, right? So that's a pretty standard thing. And, and the same is true with the Renaissance, by the way, which was single-handedly created by i think it was one german guy you know he just came up with it you know and was very very late you know nobody like <laughs> it just didn't exist you know the the period of the the renaissance and and i mean you can say obviously like people at the time they cannot like um you know name their own period but but it's more than that first of all it's interesting that it's often very late that these things got named and then it's 
it's not just a period, but you associate like a whole narrative with it, right? And and a whole history. And and that's kind of like the postmodernist thing, right? To kind of deconstruct these these myths um about history and, and how they are created and 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 the various interests and so on. So all in all, I, I found that really fascinating. And um maybe we can go into it uh later a bit more, but it answered like quite a few of my questions. Uh uh, and just to close, uh, uh, it's interesting to see how many of all those thinkers we are familiar with and, and those we are not so familiar with, but who had a huge impact were like knee deep into the esoteric, you know, the paranormal, uh, mysticism and all that stuff. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really astonishing, like from Francis Bacon to Freud to like even the, the Vienna circle, you know, like the arch. Sign, uh, scientism uh, proponents, you know, and, and some of these guys were like totally into like seances and like the paranormal and stuff. So it, it's really fascinating this this kind of hidden current in in our Western history that that nobody really talks about and and that nowadays like it's just erased from from our memory. Yeah. So, well, just just really quick. So what? summed up really quickly what is the myth of disenchantment yeah uh the the myth of disenchantment is basically the this idea that um the west uh because everybody you know like it's it's a it's a well-known trope you know that that we have this uh, that the west is disenchanted so mm-hmm. and it was max weber talked about it and various people you know in the 19th and 20th century like um, talked about that, you know, that supposedly like the the West uh, has no magic, has no like mysticism, has no um, uh, concept of the you know supernatural, all of that stuff. Um, this is what what is meant with disenchantment, and it also goes together, you know, with this um, uh, development of the te- technocratic society and technology and all of that. Um, and what he basically wants to show is that this is this is in in essence a myth because there are these like um, undercurrents and that they're not even just undercurrents you know because I always thought about it that you know there were always people interested in that stuff but they were just kind of suppressed right so mm-hmm. um, kind of fringe figures and uh, I mean throughout history or throughout modern history in the West. But he basically shows that, you know, it's, it's just literally like the the big guys, you know, like the the I mean the 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 Anthony Fauci's, you know, of of, of various uh, 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 periods, you know, were like knee deep into this stuff, you know, and and openly so often, so, and, and that's really interesting um, to see, um, like. Uh, for example, the the religious um, stuff. The, the field that c- came up in the 19th century that was like kind of emancipated itself from theology and and you know with comparative religion and all that and this was founded uh, by a guy um forgot his name now um he's famous Fraser. Like in- Fraser? was it no. Fraser no the golden bow yeah yeah Fraser yeah. was yeah 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 he was one of one of the guys I think there was another, uh, yeah, you could look it up, a German guy. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and they were like very much, you know, into this whole uh, esoteric ideas and all of that and, and the supernatural and things. And, and they weren't like the dry academics, you know, just scientifically comparing religions, you know, they were like super into and, you know, and then this is just one example, you know, the, the whole field was founded in that milieu, right? A whole scientific field. And, and, and there are so many more. And, and it's, that's just what he means by myth of disenchantment, right? Mm-hmm. And the interesting yeah, question is how the hell did that happen? No, but uh, he, did, I mean, yeah. I don't really know. You know? <laughs> well, I, I think that maybe it was in one of your posts where, or or a tweet or something. Um, I think I might be totally wrong, but uh, you or someone made the point that uh, even if you look at polls, like national polls from people like in the West, pretty much yeah. a vast majority of people will believe in in the supernatural, either in paranormal stuff or God. Um, so religious, paranormal, all these kind of weird things. So you'll even in a even in a, in a disenchanted, you know, so called disenchanted society, you still get a vast majority of people who, who believe in all these things, it's the official culture that is, that is anti this. And I just, I have this humorous picture in my mind. It's probably, it's, you know, has a low probability of being true, but it would make a, a funny cartoon or something. So you often hear about scientists who follow the party line and then when you get them in private, they'll talk about all the all the things they're interested in in private, but that they they don't say because of the because of the you know the bad press they'll get from their uh, from their peers from their scientific peers. And I just thought it would be really hilarious if the vast majority of them majority of them actually had those private beliefs, but they they all only hold them in private. So they're all like uh, they're all slamming each other whenever any of them goes out of line, but they're all secretly you know, believing at the same time, because it's either that or just the the common sense view as it appears on the surface that the majority of this minority, this like small group of scientific materialists um, are, are scientific, like disenchanted materialists. And there is just a, a tiny minority of, of ones that are actually interested in, in cool stuff. And, and yet they're totally unrep- like unrepresentative of the population at large. So so they're the ones that that write the history, so they can write all of the the weird stuff out of their own history, out of the you know the founders of their own doctrines and their own uh, uh, methodologies, and and yet you you find it everywhere. So you find it at the origins, and then you find it in the in the fringes, even in the modern day. Like the the greatest scientists of the twentieth century were all interested in totally weird shit, like. Yeah like all of them, all, all the cool ones. And, uh, chances are, if you, like, if you, if you know their name, they were probably interested in, in some weird stuff, especially in physics, you know, um, maybe not in like geology, but now we're going to get some, you know, some, some commenter on YouTube was like, Hey, this founder of geology was really into parapsychology or something. Oh, well, great. But, uh, but at least the physicists, um, you know, like, um, what, Bohr, Pauli, Pauli, yeah, yeah, Einstein, like they all had interesting beliefs that, um, and convictions that are totally at odds with the, you know, the, the official academic scientific culture that exists nowadays where that stuff is just, and even their own image. Yeah. Even, yeah. Even their own image. So the, the cool things get written out of their own, uh, their own biographies. Oh, um, well, Arcadius Yadchik, who, who we know and like, he's got a blog, 
where he writes about physics and and assorted topics. And one of his recent posts, he was talking about, I think it was Camille Flammarion <clears throat> and um, and William Crookes. And I think it was I think this post was about Crookes, who was. Um, you know, a, a highly respected scientist made numerous discoveries and, you know, had things named after him and, and won various awards. And he was really interested in psychic phenomena. So he did a, what's, what's even nowadays considered one of the most, um, one of the most rigorous and scientific tests on a, um, a so-called like, well, D Daniel Douglas Hume, who was, I guess, considered a physical medium and, uh, did, you know, had all kinds of weird stuff associated with him. Like, um, so all, all kinds of crazy claims like that, uh, um, involving probably the most crazy claim, the most like far out was that he would, he could levitate, but all sorts of things in addition to that. And so he did a, a number of tests with these like elaborate procedures, um, to, you know, just to t test out what this guy could do. And, if you look at like the official biographies in encyclopedia, scientific encyclopedia, and and things like that, his his parapsychological research just kind of gets ignored or like written out or downplayed when he like he considered it one of his central interests and and of, of vast importance. And even when he started, um, when he said he was going to start this this research, he had the support of all kinds of scientists. Like, oh, great! Finally, we're getting a scientist that's going to take this seriously and look at it. But then, when he came to the conclusion, hey, it looks like this stuff's real, then they're all like, oh, no, this guy, no, Crooks, you're not one of us anymore. It's like, uh, <laughs> so yeah, well, what? You didn't you didn't actually want me to be honest about uh, <laughs> about the conclusions I came to? Well, well, that's just it. I mean, a very open inquiry, however scientific, with controls is still gonna get demonized and shut down and, and vilified by, by its very, uh, because of what it is, because of what it's alluding to and, and what it might suggest about reality. And, it, you know, it's, yeah, but it's the, like you said. The interesting thing is like how, I mean, because I think it's like really um, a tiny minority, that's my sense, right? That, that actually organizes the, the censorship, right? Um, and that, that's kind of what the conclusion that I came to, that it's just a few powerful people in key positions that care more about like, you know, advancing their careers and become like the head honcho of some official organization, you know, and, and where they can scheme, uh, uh, you know, and, and write, uh, write the history, basically. That, that's, that I find that kind of surprising, but my sense is really that, like we see with the Vogue stuff, you know, like it's, it's a tiny minority that kind of like holds everybody captive. I, I think that's correct. And that tiny minority is so vehement and threatening. You know, I think part of the nature of, of people like uh, Henry James or uh, not Henry, William James and Rupert Sheldrake and anyone who's, who's bringing a literary or scientific rigor to these questions of metaphysics or parapsychology, uh, it's by their very open nature of uh, real curiosity, real uh, interest in wanting to know what is objectively true about reality, that it, it isn't innate in most of them to, to be uh, sharp and defensive about their inquiries. They're just open. They're just 
uh, almost childlike in, in their questioning. And this, th there's this, uh, and all it seems to require is enough of these people in, in positions of power, as you said, to put the screws on uh, the inquiry and to squash the, the inquiry, you know, almost from the get-go. And, and we've seen this so many times with Rupert Sheldrake in particular uh, in, in recent years. And just to add to what you were saying earlier, a uh, huge movement in, in the turn of the 20th century uh, among many people to bring esoteric ideas into um, general awareness. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the afterlife literature of Life Beyond the Veil. I mean, this was published in a, a national, it was pretty, uh, I don't know if it was national, but it was pretty wide, widely read publication in serial form. And, and people all around Europe were reading it as, as this information was coming out. Um, you know, it was supported by, uh, by fairly well-known authors and and others and and um, and publishers, and now all of this type of material is usually relegated to more uh, tabloidish, you know, uh, mass publications. It's it's been it, it's it isn't part of the the national. Um, or widespread conversation for the most part. Well, I, I don't would know, say because even even like early serialization wouldn't that have been considered like the the pulp or or like the History Channel of the time? Uh, well, that's that's a possible point. like because it's like the, the the point I was I was making earlier about the the number of people who believe in the supernatural it's like that's why the history channel is so popular and that's why there's so many shows is because people love that stuff and have always loved that stuff uh, that's kind of the way I see it now there's the seriousness of it but then again like you watch history channel you'll still get um and I'm just using that as a catch-all for all that you know that type of stuff like you'll still get um shows on even on network tv like I was, I didn't know this one existed, but there's a show, um, I can't remember the name of it, but it's, I'm, I can't even remember what channel it's on, but it's a whole, a whole series to at least two seasons by now of, um, like reincarnation research, basically taking the approach of Ian Stevenson and, um, and his kind of, uh, the guy that kind of took over after, after Stevenson died, I think his name's, uh, Jeffrey Tucker or Jim Tucker, um, and who's written two or three books on the subject. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a history channel type show, but with the same kind of level of, of, um, seriousness that you, that you'd get from an actual researcher, like, like Tucker. There was also, now that you mentioned it, it reminds me that there's actually, um, like entertainment news or something like that has a resident psychic, that they they have like shows and episodes of this psychic celebrity psychic going to all these different celebrities and then talking with them and like him coming up with all of these like things that no one could have possibly yeah. known about these people's families and uh i, I mean it's a it's it's like a news tablo uh celebrity tabloid type thing and yet it still has something in there to appeal to the mass audiences um I guess, like mm -hmm. interest in 
the the paranormal. Yeah, I, I guess it's a kind of a, a dual point. It's that uh, I think that, like Elon, I think you were making the were you try were you making the point that it was at least taken more seriously at that in that era or I I think so. Okay. Uh, I I think because you had people who were proponents of uh, who were vocal in their support of. Uh, research that was coming out. Uh, you had many more um, uh, local uh, groups. It, it was it was much more mm -hmm. a part of um, uh, common thinking and perhaps accepted by more official channels. Okay. At the time. So so I'd I'd I'd, I'd again partially agree because I think at mm -hmm. least from like the official scientific community, it's always been shunned. Shunned. That's why when crooks did his did his research it was like he was one of the first to do it and when he did and and showed any kind of positive disposition towards it then he was shunned so there there i don't think there's ever been a time in in you know western scientific mo western modern scientific history when it was actually taken seriously maybe the maybe the maybe the the quality was slightly higher among the mass you know, the, the, the mass presentation of the ideas. But then again, yeah. like, like I said, we still have find, find a lot of great, a lot of pretty good stuff in the mainstream today that people eat up, but they'll eat up the good stuff or the bad stuff. You know, it doesn't really matter what the quality is. Yeah. But I think, I, I think I'm, my impression is that it's, it's, it's been kind of like a gradual process, you know, in, in terms of like shunning um, these, these topics and that it got especially worse after world war two, basically, or it got like super bad and like super, super bad. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the Royal Society uh, in in Britain, uh, and even in the 19th century, they, they re were really hard, you know, and, and hardliners, basically. So there was definitely going, uh, I mean, the, or the men, the, with the, who was it, Crooks uh, was his name, right? Um, the, mm -hmm. the example, I mean, there are examples like that. But, uh, Still, I mean, uh, I mean, there, there. It seems that even scientists, you know, could be more open about it uh, back then without like being uh, like totally ostracized. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, maybe if they crossed the line, you know, even the nineteenth century, then you know, the 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 probably like three guys, you know, in the royal uh, society, whatever, like this hardcore, like authoritarian, uh, like I don't know, um, idiots, you know, they 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 would like crush them but but yeah and, and even before then i mean it was just more commonplace i mean as as the guy traced in in, in this book you know um uh, even like uh francis bacon and and uh, uh you know some of the french enlighteners um uh and i mean all of these guys they they were like super deep into i mean not to mention newton and uh uh, I mean, it's not just that they had a little hobby, you know, at the side. That's how it is portrayed, right? Uh, these mm. days, you know, if it's even acknowledged, you know, it was like that was the essence of, you know, of their thought. That's how they came to their theories that we now, you know, call like proto science or whatever. I mean, that's just that the whole thing, you know, and uh, and and obviously they were like totally open about it, and uh, and even later, you know, I mean. Like the whole literary tradition and the, the German tradition, like with Goethe and uh, and and Lessing and all of these guys. I mean, Schiller. They, they were like 
you know, they, they weren't, weren't canceled, you know, if they like wrote all the time about that kind of stuff. Right. I mean, so I think it's, uh, it, 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 it was a kind of a gradual process and, and to maybe even like um, some history rewriting after the fact, you know, that it now seems to us that it was more suppressed in some sense than it actually was. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, because it was at it, least, oh, it was at least open enough at that time that Crooks thought this would be a good idea and that, you know, <laughs> that he might, he might get away with it. Right. Like today, yeah. Today, you, you like you can count the number of scientists that would be willing to like do that experiment today, probably on one hand. Yeah, they and, know uh, what's what's up, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Well, I wonder if that has anything to do with the you know you were talking about before with the um, like the pulp fiction writing and and just the development of mass media where uh, people with loud voices need not be in a specific milieu like they don't actually need to be deep within the the literature on uh physics or whatever to know what somebody is claiming and what um um what that could mean it just it it you know with the invention of you know obviously the printing press at first but then um newspapers and tabloids and then more mass market media type things uh, and then TV and radio, uh, where information became more disseminated, where you have... Um, I'm not grasping your point. The The basic point was that um, as, as communications developed uh, and became more wider reaching, that the... Mm, that the people that would control thinking would, I guess, have uh, like a lower threshold for what qualifies them to make a statement about it. If that makes sense. Um, Almost. I'm trying, I'm like, I had it in my mind. And so now I'm trying to like reorganize it, but it just, it reminded me of a conversation that we were having um, a couple of uh, shows ago where, um, Oh gosh, what was it? The, um, the theosophist, the Christian theosophist, would, like Buma, who um, would all of a sudden get a detractor to mm -hmm. just uh, you know and instigate this crusade against them mm -hmm. uh, for anyone because you know Buma had this uh, these ideas that were outside of the orthodoxy, and so now we're. Um, you know, anyone who goes outside of any kind of orthodoxy, um, you know, it's it's like, you know, all bets are off in that respect. You you can't rely on being like sheltered in any way because uh, if a physicist writes in a uh, writes a tweet, everyone knows about it. Whereas if a hundred years ago a physicist wrote a paper, no one knew about it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That makes sense. But but yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not getting the connection to the first thing you said, but the one of the thoughts that that brings up for me is that same with pulp fiction, like the, the pulps actually 
allow for an outlet for the the majority thinking well basically the the market the market reflects the the demand for this type of material so that's why you see in the paper book section of any used bookstore you'll see hundreds of metaphysical books on you know little paperbacks on um the afterlife and out-of-body experiences and um, angels and just, you know, more than you could ever read because that's the kind of thing that people want to read. Well, yeah, no, I'm, I'm basically mm -hmm. trying to like re reconcile all of the different points that everyone's been making mm -hmm. into something that actually is coherent mm -hmm. um, and cohesive um, more broadly speaking, um, you know, because, you know, like, I was, you know, mentioning in the the show that we had done previously where there does seem to be some kind of like control mechanism that gets activated when certain things are brought up. But at the same time, like you're saying, um, you know, there is a large religious section in bookstores. There's um, new age sections in bookstores. There's, there's a market for these times, types of ideas. Um, and it's not totally crushed. It's not totally, you know, you can't talk about it. So where's the, because even though, you know, like you're saying, it is a, it is a phenomenon which a number of people think that there is something to, um, and a lot of people talk about it and write about it and read about it. But at the same time too, it doesn't quite make it into um, I guess orthodox culture, although you can still have some of that in there. Well, they're, so they're like two different worlds. So they got like a medical doctor who writes a, a mass market paperback on near death experiences can get away with it and sell lots of copies. But if he were to write that same art, try to write that same article in a medical journal in a more scientific framework, he'd have a harder time doing it and get less readership than he would writing his mass market paper book, right? And so yeah. he might, so people, I think there, there are certain rules. So you can, you can write your trade paperback on, uh, on the weird stuff that you encounter in your medical practice. But when you try to take that into the, the scientific community, mm. then that's okay. like, yeah. no, now you've gone too far. You've, you've strayed from the, from the disreputable <clears throat> pulps into the you know the higher yeah. you know it, it's the, the official the hallowed realms yeah, yeah. It, that, that, I think that's a key point it's like um, it's like the the official kind of like institutions in our society like the you know like the modern churches basically which like, you know are the universities and their associated institutions and uh, you know the basically the 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 official truth right I mean that's that's where they draw the line um that that's pretty obvious you know like it, as long as the official truth is like oh that's all bs you know um then you can you know this weirdo uh doctor you know he can write his book you know that's that's not really a problem but as long as the the official truth is it you know, prevails and i just wanted to make one point about this conflict because um that's also what what you find when you look into the history a bit is that uh, it's not exactly also a, a conflict between, or was not a conflict between science and uh, and this, you know, like uh, crazy supernatural stuff, but it was 
actually a conflict between religion and the crazy supernatural stuff. And, and this crazy supernatural stuff is basically what became science, right? Because uh, uh, it's, it's pretty logical if you think about it. Um, uh, if, if you're like a, a contrarian, you know, free thinker who doesn't really like to have, uh, you know, your priest or the Pope uh, telling you what, what you're allowed to think or not to think, uh, then you kind of get ideas about like, oh, maybe we just do this psi experiment, right? Or, <laughs> or let's, let's study magic or whatever and, and go about it in a, you know, sort of scientific way. And that's, that's really how it, how, you know, this so-called scientific method, you know, whatever that is, uh, uh, kind of started so that's something you know, because people always think it's like yeah the church versus science you know or science versus the supernatural but um the roots are uh, actually a bit different and uh, it's basically authority against people you know uh, having ideas how does how does uh david ray griffin's account of the kind of the history of these worldviews stack up against this guy's because just to, as a reminder, I think we talked about it before, but Griffin basically argued that the current, the current worldview, like the current materialist worldview was kind of, um, the winner out of not a competing, not two competing worldviews, yeah, but, but three, three right? Yeah. So there yeah. was the church, the kind of the hermeticist er esoteric worldview, and then the kind of strict materialist one. And so his point was that, the one of the reasons, like the, he, well, he argued that the the hermeticist one was t was perfectly valid. It could have gone that way, but if I remember correctly, one of the main reasons it didn't was because of the church, because the, the because of the the hermetic view kind of went up against some key doctrines of the church. Like basically, yeah. if we were to if we were to accept that um, the paranormal was real like uh, so-called miracles, then that would take miracles out of the authority of the church. So exactly. what they, what they used as a, as a buttress for the, for their own authority and their own, like the, their historical, um, uh, what would be the word historical uniqueness? Like um, we have these miracles at the central, at the central point of our religion. And those are the miracles that make, that make this religion and our beliefs true and our doctrines true. Now, if we were to, to democratize that, that ability, that, that miraculous nature and say, oh, well, you know, so, so Jesus could read people's minds, but if, if that's like a, uh, if that's pretty much either universally or randomly distributed among humans, and you can easily find any number of people in, in any population who can read minds, it kind of diminishes from the uniqueness of, of Jesus and the miracles that proved that he was the son of God. So, so, okay, well, if that's the case, then eh, we can't really go in that direction, can we? Because it uh, takes away from our, our authority. You know, that's basically still the official position of the Catholic Church and I think even of the Orthodox Church, but I'm not sure. Um, I just stumbled upon this again, uh, reading Paul King's, King's North, I think, uh, the another subs, famous substacker. Uh, he's an Orthodox uh, Christian, yeah, very good substack. Um, and he kind of wrote about AI, you know, and, and how this might be like a demonic possess possession thing uh that's going on and stuff uh, which was a very cool cool article and um and he also cited Ste rudolf steiner you know and then talked a bit about it but obviously he said like oh that's not his theology you know he's an orthodox christian but he found some interesting points in there and he said you know that i i think it was the official catholic doctrine or whatever um that says basically 
um, we acknowledge the, the the existence of miracles and the supernatural, but uh, uh, we prohibit or strongly discourage any experiments with that, you know, whatsoever, because it can only lead to delusions and evil and blah, blah, blah. So you have still that, you know, that position that basically um, doesn't want, I mean, there are good reasons for that, you know, I mean, it's not mm -hmm. that it's just, it's bad, it's kind of a sensible position, but still is that you have this, this, um, this idea that, um, you cannot really, you know, it's the miracles and all that stuff. It's like the exclusive, uh, exclusive Christian thing. And, you know, it's like uh, we decide who's the saint. Uh, and, uh, you know, and some even would say like there are Christians, I think, who believe that the, 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 all this business with uh, miracles, it stopped at some point, right? It just mm -hmm. didn't go on. And so, uh, and I think that to your question, um, it actually stacks up pretty nicely. I, I, I kind of thought about that too when I, when I read the book, um, because um, that there's definitely this conflict between the church and and these hermeticists, right? And and uh, they kind of la latched on to like the more materialist views, although you know it, it wasn't like exactly the materialism that like mm -hmm. the, we call materialism today, right? It's more like this uh, Cartesian dualism. Mm -hmm. things like that where you have like on the one hand a kind of like mechanistic universe but you still have like the supernatural um but uh yeah so they kind of um uh, favored that and and for me it always helps you know if you if you just think about the types you know and and i thought you the show we did uh, about the this uh jacob Böhme and his like stalker and the article you wrote harrison i mean that, that really illustrates this dynamic very well you just got to imagine the guys you know and and you just imagine at the time you know some church dude like official like you know the, the equivalent of some like authoritarian guy in some institution today right like some politician or whatever and uh, some uh, powerful dude you know scheming and and then you think about someone like that i mean he is not interested in that stuff right i mean he does probably doesn't even believe in 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 that stuff and and he certainly doesn't want you know uh people having ideas about about that stuff so i i can easily see you know like the the story uh ray griffin tells how this played out right i mean you have this uh all these like super interested and uh, smart and some even dangerous you know guys um who starting to think about this stuff experimenting and uh, I mean, even like Goethe, I mean, he was just brilliant, you know, and, and just it was interested in so many things. And, and there were like many people like that. And 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 you can easily see how, you know, how they wanted to just suppress that. Right. And uh, and yeah, so so I think it it stacks up pretty well. You know, this mm. this whole uh, uh, it's like um, banishing of the supernatural into like this other realm that nobody really has anything to do with. And that is kind of like an abstract construct, you know, a theological construct. Mm -hmm. I think the way that Griffin put it was that the, um, basically the battle between the, the intellectual battle between the, the Catholics, for instance, or the, or the Christians and the Hermeticists, even though there's overlap, of course, because the, most of the Hermeticists were also Christian, but the, the, the gap between the different worldviews, um, was, was such that Cartesian dualism 
was found to be more compatible with the the official religious doctrine take. And once that kind of alliance was made, then once th then it followed the the kind of trajectory of Western philosophy along with it. So because after Cartesian dualism came, then it's like so Descartes kind of split the world in half and still gave gave them equal value. Like he was religious, he believed in God. But once he'd split it apart, it became easier and easier to just chip away at the at the mind half of the mind matter dichotomy to the point where, you know, our, our philosophy today is pretty much half of Cartesian dualism. And so the... And they're the, wondering why they're running in circles all the time, right? <laughs> right, right. So you've got half a worldview. <clears throat> and, and so it's almost... So Griffin kind of makes the point that, the, the, well, the reason that happened was because the church essentially sided with... Descartes, roughly speaking, you know, in the, in the battle of worldviews. And, um, and so all of the, all of the kind of fringe guys today are kind of the inheritors of that, um, that the, or they're the, the continuers of the, the losing third team that, uh, that lost out in this debate. So, and probably, I, I don't even think a lot of them maybe, you know, maybe aware of it because you read, you read the stuff like we, we interviewed, um, um, Jim Carpenter and his book First Sight, and we've had a you know a number of talks on subjects of that sort. And you read those kind of books, and it's it's pretty much like essentially those aspects of the Hermetic worldview, but just in a in a in a modern contemporary scientific framework. It's like oh well, this just seems to be the way reality works, and it yeah. does a lot better job than than Cartesian dualism and or 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 anything else and it's like oh well those those were the guys that we kind of banished from the realm for for having wrong thoughts the guys that actually seem to have gotten it right we didn't even give them a chance um it's just it's kind of sad Make, makes me sad <laughs> yeah it is sad but that ties in a bit, I guess, with um, unless we wanted to go in a different direction. One of the books that I was reading recently was uh, uh, Life After Life by Raymond Moody. Raymond Moody. Moody. I like Blur. Moody. <laughs> Moody Dick. Um, no, it's uh, Life After Life. And it is a um, an amalgam, not an amalgamation, but a, a collection of, you know, different uh, stories of, of people that he had interviewed with, uh, different, uh, near death experiences, what they experienced and how, um, similar everything seemed to be. Um, and then, you know, also towards the end of the book tries to compare it to different, like physical, uh, ailments that people know create say hallucinations um, or, uh, you know, a, a distancing between oneself and one's body, like a disconnect. Um, and it seems to me that this is one of those situations where, you know, were someone so inclined, they really could get, I think, some really interesting information about what it is like outside of one's body, um, you know, what other realms might be like, uh, were this to be taken seriously and actually investigated as opposed to being deemed heretical and um, mocked out of existence. Um, but really interesting book and, you know, it gives you some really interesting insights into um, the things that you would think would matter to people, 
you know, like when someone uh, spends like 10 years of their life going through like say medical school. And then when they have a near death experience, they realize that in the grand scheme of it, it, that actually didn't matter at all to them. It, what mattered to them was the little things that they didn't really think about where they did something for somebody else, not really thinking about it at the time, but then from a, from a different perspective, realizing that that is more important, doing little things for people, um, just to be helpful, just to be kind and generous is way more important than, you know, creating a, uh, well, than, you know, getting a, a doctorate or, you know, a law degree or what, or what have you. Um, yeah. and also the, another thing that I found really interesting was that, um, a, a number of the people who, you know, once they have the near death experience and then come back, say that they have a thirst for knowledge, that knowledge becomes super important for them after the fact. And I thought it was a really curious, you know, what is it? Why, why knowledge? What is it about knowledge that was so, um, that was, that just had such a draw for people that a number of them came back to say that it, that it became a new driving factor in their life to where like a number of people like started going back to school in order to learn. And I just thought it was a, uh, you know, that's a fascinating little detail. I just say that to my higher self, you know, higher self, you come down and you say that to my lower self's face, you know, <laughs> 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 yeah. My lower self knows what's what's what knows what's really important, and it ain't it ain't knowledge. <laughs> it's the latest Marvel movie. That's what's important. Yeah, but I, I want to uh, add another layer to this story because um, I'm I'm reading another book at the moment just started, but somebody recommended it to me, and I've, maybe you guys even know it. Uh, it's called. Uh, the Trickster and the Paranormal by uh, George P. Hansen. Mm -mm. Uh, yeah, uh, it's it's really fascinating. I would just um, a quick point about you know like this relationship between science and and this paranormal stuff. I mean, there's like this you know uh, suppression going on and the the all of that, but there might even be a, another issue in terms of like that. Uh, this kind this kind of stuff kind, sort of defies um the scientific method right and and the the kind of uh, uh, i mean to go postmodernist on this uh it kind of defies like the the logocentric you know western uh, uh ideas about stuff um because it's it's just you know it's not really uh repeatable uh, or replicable uh, it kind of be, be the, the laws seem to change uh i mean a near-death experience you cannot just induce you know i mean they, they just report it when they happen but cannot really like replicate replicate it and and all that or, sort if you, of stuff. or if you did it would be very unethical well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, were there yeah, a couple but, movies but, about but, that where they where they purposefully well it's been done in various novels and movies where they might like purposefully induce an NDE once or twice. Mm -hmm, there mm -hmm. might've even been a movie like premised on that. Yeah. That, uh, there was one with, uh, Kiefer Sutherland and Julia Roberts some 30 years ago. And it was, was uh, 
I forget the name of it. Is it like Flatliners or something? It like was that? Flatliners, yeah. And uh, they induced death, and and um, some of them to face their own uh, their own demons. And uh, but basically, the the lesson is don't mess with you know the natural process, well, which is good enough. I all, suppose. all I'm saying is that maybe it's possible. Yeah, I mean, good luck. Good luck getting that through the ethics commission, right? <laughs> I'm just but, saying, maybe it's possible if you ignore the ethics boards and just yeah, yeah. do it. In your, do it in your basement. Uh, but uh, and <laughs> the people that you have locked up there. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should do self, you know, heroic self uh, experimentation in the name of science or something. Oh, better not. Uh, but you know, like just, he makes another point, you know, that, um, or this related point, uh, that I found fascinating is actually that those psi phenomena or like all those paranormal stuff and, and all that, it actually seems to, um, work better in, in conditions that are like fluid and uncertain. So for example, when the, when a lab is is like having trouble and is about to get closed uh, then suddenly like you know there's more positive results and and uh, it seems that boundaries like and uh, you know like uh uh fixed sort of thinking in uh fixed institutions and and basically all of the modern stuff you know like uh, uh organized society and and um, rules and regulations and and all of that uh, seems to actually like block that that sort of mm -hmm. thing and 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 when things when th those are removed and then things are getting chaotic then suddenly this stuff kind of creeps in uh, which also makes you wonder you know like in 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 the chaotic times that we live in now with some of these you know like uh, even like uh, gender uh, boundaries getting like you know i mean what what's coming through you know i don't know i, I had that thought but it's it's still it's it's interesting that might be another reason why uh why it is kind of like not really studied scientifically so much um because it you just need a totally different framework right you, you need like totally new ideas and and western science as it is usually thought of today is just in a sense not just because of the materialism but because of like the whole idea basically of of science like the method very strict uh, methodological approach mm -hmm. and and the labs and uh, and all that uh, might just not be that compatible with it it's like mm -hmm. it's kind of a clash well what's so so interesting you know when you were saying that is i was just thinking you know that the the catholic church has its own uh, exorcism school and uh, elements of uh, intelligence agencies and the military in the U.S. have their own remote viewing and parapsychology labs. And it's only when you really dig deep, uh, because you're, you happen to be interested in these subjects, do you learn that, you know, at the official level, uh, you get one kind of narrative. And, you know, when you dig a little deeper, these incredibly powerful institutions are in fact quite interested in how things work, uh, but only in so far as it serves their their own mandates or uh, the, um, the ability the, to control the, that, the, or the images they're, they're trying to project as institutions. That reminds me of um, something I read recently that that is analogous to what we were discussing about David Ray Griffin and the, and the battle of worldviews and how the church kind of 
played into that initial conflict. Um, I was listening to one of George Knapp's recent podcasts on, um, you know, the state of UFO research. And I think he was, he was interviewing, I can't remember who he was interviewing, but I, I think it was someone that was part of, you know, one of the, one of the recent, uh, you know, military UFO programs, UFO study programs. And they were making the point that a lot of the, a lot of the conflict or the hassle or the the pushback they were getting from within the military wasn't from hardcore materialists. It was from the ones with strong religious beliefs. It was from the ones that thought that that the UFO phenomenon was demonic in nature and wanted and therefore didn't and therefore I don't know, I don't understand the logic, therefore shouldn't be studied. You'd think that if you're you know, religious, and there's this de demonic thing going on that you, maybe you'd want to study it so that you know what <laughs> Satan's doing. I don't know. That didn't never yeah. really made sense to me. <laughs> but that ties back to a, a, a book that Nick Redfern wrote, you know, 20, I don't know, 20 years ago, making a similar point about, uh, I think it was called Final Events. And it was about this group within the, you know, high level military kind of guys that were, that were, that was their their worldview. That was their view of the UFO phenomenon that it was demonic in nature. And but apparently this played into um, you know some of the pushback against that program. Basically, you shouldn't exist. You shouldn't be doing this because demons. But like I say, if demons, then study the demons. <laughs> you know? Well, at least going back to uh, my my religious background, um, that was always what. I was told, like, for instance, like Ouija boards, like you never mess with a Ouija board because demons. And the the logic there seems to be that um, there's no way of controlling it or learning from it without being tainted or taken over. So it's basically like the reason why you don't go there is because you're messing with things you don't understand that are way more powerful than you. And in that sense, you're kind of like, Okay, I kind of see your point. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I kind of see the point. But at the same time, it's like if you want to do that, <laughs> if you want to lose your your immortal soul, then okay, um, I'll warn you against it. But still, I'm I might learn something from it. You know, I can learn from your errors. But no, if you get taken over by a demon, and then you somehow take over the world well yeah. okay so <laughs> it's a slippery okay. slope there but, no, but, but, yeah, but there's can, you know that there's see. a difference between like you know warning people of dangers and like basically pretending it doesn't exist and not wanting to you know like find out what mm -hmm. what this is all about you know i mean that, that there's a there's a difference right i mean you could also mm -hmm. say okay this thing is dangerous but we kind of need to figure this out. So let's let's put a bunch of you know priests on the line. <laughs> uh, good luck, guys. You know, like you go first uh, and see. Like, uh, I mean, uh, you could like you know, as a church, you know, or whatever, like uh, as a religion, you could try to kind of find out what's what's going on there, and and also figure out how to protect yourself, you know, and uh, what this is all mm -hmm. about, and blah blah blah. Um, go about it like. Um, methodologically and also if you are if you claim to um 
have a have a, a religion, a true religion, or like a rooting in 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 the good in God and your connection to God and Christ and whatever, then you should also be able to kind of find a way to protect yourself spiritually while, um, you know, um, uh, carefully engaging with with that sort of thing. Right. The yeah. The the thing that gets me is the. There's this weird, weird contradiction where, in that case, you've got let's just just hypothetically let's take this say it's the case that you've got these high level military guys that are like, no, the military shouldn't be studying UFOs because you could be causing yourself danger and you could be causing us danger. Meanwhile, in the general public, there's like millions of people that think that these aliens are like angels and coming and and, and going to save us. And it's like, oh, I want to get taken up by the ship and, and meet the angels. You'd think that that would translate into, okay, maybe we should actually be public about our beliefs about this so that we can warn people that they're falling into a demonic delusion and, um, and maybe save some souls that way. But it's like, no, we got to keep it hush hush um, because demons, even though the demon the people are like worshiping the demons it's you'd think you'd want to do something about that but apparently yeah. not yeah it doesn't make yeah, any sense it's it, it, there are, i think there are some elements in or a lot of elements in religion that are just afraid of that sort of thing and because it kind of threatens their belief systems i mean uh it makes sense to frame it in terms of demons and stuff but you know once you get into reincarnation, you know, dudes from the afterlife telling you all about, you know, like uh, you're getting reincarnated and uh, and there's these deluded uh, Jesus freaks up here, you know, who kind of are stuck in there. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, um, it probably wouldn't uh, go down too well. So I think there's also like an instinctive, um, at least in certain parts of like more the more authoritarian-minded religion uh, mm-hmm. to just stay away from it because it's too it's too open it's too unpredictable it's too threatening um it's too crazy and mine might contradict some of the stuff we believe and things like that mm-hmm. well coming back to what you were saying about that about let me know if I summarize this correctly, just really quickly, the, that parapsychology and this kind of thing isn't conducive to the modern scientific methodology, right? But then, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah in a sense, yeah. Okay, so I, I'd agree, and but, but I'd also point out that the, how to put this? So if you look at parapsychological research in the last 60 years, kind of since the Rhines, um, it's been very scientific method, like driven. And so on the, on the one hand, you'd, you could say that it's been, it's been great because there have actually been, been good results that have been found using these methods. Um, for most, for most, even I'd say scientists that look in that, that look into it with an open mind, you know, not rejecting it completely from the outset, they say, oh, wow, there's actually, there actually might be something to this. So on the one hand, it seems to be at least to a degree conducive to rigorous scientific protocols to the extent that, um, uh, I can't remember where I, where I read this, but, um, probably, I think it was, it was probably a parapsychologist, but it might not have been making the point that actually the parapsychologists 
have the have the best designed research or yeah. best designed experimental protocols like because they are the ones that that know that they they are going to get the most um criticism and looked at with the 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 the, the, the strongest magnifying yeah, glass. the biggest strongest magnifying glass that they need to to make sure they've like crossed all their t's and dotted all their i's and uh, curled all their all their q's um they they know they have to be super rigorous so they're like the most hyper scientific out of the bunch when they're designing a some kind of experiment um to study but on the other hand it's it's also true that 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 is the least con conducive method for actual, um, um, actual or just wait, I gotta, I have to have a guest join us. A kitty. K come on, kitty. No, he doesn't want to come in. Maybe next time. <laughs> go away, kitty. <laughs> yeah, but so, uh, you know, uh, yeah, go ahead. I, I read some, something about that, uh, true somewhere, I think, that you know th these guys the the the, the researchers some of them um, actually make the point themselves that they they kind of have tried to prove to the scientific establishment that this stuff is real right like for ages and for everybody like who looks into the literature like comes to the conclusion yes you know they have achieved it even a long time ago you know i mean it is like even from the scientific paradigm you know from that perspective this stuff is real you know i mean there is just no doubt about it there's something going on we don't know really what it is but something is going on uh and uh, but then they kind of also get stuck in this paradigm right i mean they mm -hmm. still get called names right i mean they will never uh convince the scientific establishment no matter how like great their studies are and so at some point um and I think some have said that this themselves, you know, like they just need to move on because you just need a different paradigm. You know, I mean, it's all fine and good to have these num random number generators and, and like tests and whatever and statistics. Uh, but right. uh, I mean, just to give an example, I mean, there, there are theories that actually you cannot explain language uh, without telepathy. And, and I mean, mm -hmm. why not think about that kind of stuff? But then you... There's nothing you can, uh, that's not, not something that you can scientifically, like in, in, with experiments or something, you know, like study, or maybe you can, I don't know, with a different paradigm, but uh, it's just, you know, like think bigger kind of thing. Yeah, because the downside of that rigorous scientific protocol is that the, the parapsychologists end up studying like the least interesting aspects of their subject matter, right? It's like, oh, yeah. so random number generator. Oh, I made it get like 50.4% when it should have been 50. <laughs> and, you know, people are like, okay, I guess that's cool. But, you know, I want to see people like floating elephants with their minds. Um, that's the kind of like... Like that's the kind of stuff that would really get headlines. But like, so I mean, it's important. <laughs> right. I mean, it's important stuff and it actually, it actually is interesting, but it's not, it's, you know, it's not like the kind of stuff that you're getting in the 1800s, like, or that Crooks was studying, right? Um, it's, uh, that's the, that's the downside, but, uh, it should be used cool. as the, the, um, the instigator as like, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. we have verifiable, <laughs> like incontrovertible proof that something is here. Yeah. Now let me get someone to levitate an elephant <laughs> yeah. with their mind while talking to somebody on the other side of the globe while right. floating themselves. I don't know. And that may be real unrealistic, but the point is that we have to, 
do the studies to find out <laughs> if it's unrealistic or not. Because how do we know? But, right, maybe the Jedi, maybe the Yoda in you know Return of the Jedi or Empire Strikes Back when he lifts the X-Wing out of the swamp. Like maybe this is something that's within the realm of possibility. We just simply can't know unless we do the studies but to test it out. Luke's got a rejoinder. Yeah, because you know, I mean, he's got to have uh, to have a blue milk. It, it seems that it doesn't work that way, right? I mean, it seems right. that you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you have this guy. He he walks out of his house one morning. He's stressed. Um, m- maybe he's in India, or whatever, and uh, something went wrong, and he, you know, and he he runs out, and there is an elephant. He looks at it. Boom! You know, he levitates mm-hmm. it. <laughs> But then you right. know if we if if then the the scientist comes you know and says oh do that again you know it's like yeah, do, do it again. I, I don't know <laughs> doesn't work you know I mean this is just everything is weird about that stuff right mm-hmm. and so it's it's kind of it's kind of difficult mm-hmm. yeah yep but um, it's not completely hopeless though at least I don't think it is and that's why that's why I like to James. Carpent Jim James Jim Carpenter's book because he basically basically agreed like he he only in that in that book he only focuses on the lab stuff so it's the kind of stuff that I'd consider actually kind of pretty boring um, and you know not that um, not that crazy or out there but the the principles that he comes to just based on that are kind of totally in line with what you were saying Luke about it's just not conducive to that sort of thing. Like the, the most in the most interesting phenomena of this sort seem to be completely spontaneous. And that seems to be an essential part of it. So in order to, in order to implement or in order to put all that and into a study, then you'd kind of need to make spontaneity a part of the study, which kind of isn't possible. So there will always be a limit to the kind of studies that you, that you can do in that sense. But with that, with that kind of awareness, you can, I think that you can widen the range of the, not only the results, but the kind of things that you can study. And and that, that could at least give the people interested in it more of an understanding of it, maybe even more of a, of a control, I wouldn't, you know, kind of a control over it. Um, that would be the wrong way of putting it because it, you know, it's kind of wouldn't work that way, but it's kind of like a paradox. Like once you, once you know how, once you know that you shouldn't, what would be a way of putting it? It's like, if you, if you know that in order to solve a problem, you need to stop thinking about it. Um, well, it might be hard to stop thinking about it, but it's not impossible. You just know, okay, I have to learn how to stop thinking about it. And I think that is possible. You can learn, you can teach yourself to not think about it. Yeah, and so that's a good that's a good approach, actually, and I, and I I just had the same thought or similar thought that actually to to go one step further with this, one need to like think about thinking, right? Or just um, uh, if if this guy you know managed to spontaneously levitate the the elephant, you know, and and but he cannot just consciously reproduce it. Um, so the question is then, you know, what? How did he do that? You know, unconsciously, and and how? Could we change our thinking or um, to kind of, you know, maybe learn more about how this works and perhaps even like be able to one day to reproduce it more, uh, mm-hmm. you know, more reliably. Um, but it, yeah. it probably requires a whole new way of thinking and maybe just learning how to not think about something is part of it and uh, and how to totally go counter, you know, your, your instincts or, I mean, whatever, I mean, 
And that these are interesting questions, but um, that isn't something that you can easily like put a study, you know, in, in a, in a paper. I mean, um, or probably with only very boring results, uh, if, if you mm -hmm. manage that, but, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. So it, this all reminded me of, a a synchronicity, uh, that I experienced some decades ago that was so off the wall and so, uh, arbitrary, uh, but also so significant to me that, um, you know, it was sort of like reality saying there's something else at work. And, uh, and I had no idea what it was. So grabbed Jung's book on synchronicity, uh, and thought, oh, well, you know, Carl Jung, big guy thought about a lot of these things. And, um, I found the book to be impenetrable, uh, just unreadable. Uh, so I have no idea whether or not his ideas were, <laughs> were getting at, you know, the, the, the essence of what the dynamic was when I experienced the synchronicity. And it could be that, that through his, you know, use of language and complex ideas, he was onto something. And I just, at the time, you know, was not able to get to the bottom of it. But um, that really speaks to finding a language to describe uh, all of these things and a framework that's understandable. And maybe because it's it's so out of the bounds of common experience and the way that we experience uh, time and space and and our thoughts and our experiences that you know we we just we haven't um, we haven't yet come across a way a framework that is uh, accessible enough for most people to uh, latch onto and assimilate to to explain the teleportation of elephants or synchronicities or 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 no, anything got, else we can get from levitation to teleportation okay we yes. have teleportation <laughs> yes <laughs> well <laughs> that'd be a next you know next yeah. level uh <laughs> next level parapsychological phenomena thinking. yes so um uh, but who knows, you know, we, we continue to read this stuff with much interest and, uh, and look for frameworks that'll help us to understand for ourselves what it is we're, you know, um, we're looking at, uh, when, when these things are read about or experienced personally. Quick, quick question for maybe, maybe future research, but Luke, I want to, I want to know off the top of your head, do you, what are like the time periods for like the Renaissance and the, um, enlightenment? Do you know, like generally what, what the, Oh, um, so for the enlightenment, for sure. It's, um, generally, um, 17th and 18th century. Right. That's mm -hmm. usually what, what you would think. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then like the, major figures and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. like the, all the philosophy of the, especially the, um, yeah, 17th, 18th century. Um, and Renaissance, um, yeah. So like so 1400s. I, yeah, it was. Yeah. And, and then also later, I think, I mean, it's kind of like overlaps, I guess, but yeah, that would be my guess. I, I'm ashamed. Okay. I, I would have to, 
look it yeah. up uh, basically so it's a, it's a pretty large period as well i think yeah i'm just i'm just wondering if part of that might be a like a, a projection onto certain phases of secular cycles uh, that's that's what i want to want to look at because i think it was like the in pretty much all of europe there was um like i think it was the 16th century that saw like major collapses like all over the place um i think you know my my uh my chronological history is really bad i'm i'm bad with you know when Mine things too. happened but um <laughs> But yeah, well, so that's why that's why I said maybe a question for for future for for future research that maybe we can come back to because I want to see if if that might be if the, like those those periods that were kind of like retroactively pro projected onto you know onto the past you know they yeah. they didn't call themselves that I want to I want to know if that if they were the people that were doing that were kind of identifying a feature that's actually kind of maybe common in in certain certain secular cycles of history. It's like, oh, well, that's, of course, you know, you'd find that kind of stuff because that's the, maybe that was the, the like, the generative part of the, the generative integrative part of the cycle where that kind of tends to happen, you know, in most societies and experiencing those kind of cycles. And, mm -hmm. uh, cause then you've got, of course, the collapse cycles. And I doubt you have a whole bunch of, um, you know, great ideas coming, coming up, like, you know, during, during a societal collapse, um, no, it's true. And then I thought about that too, uh, because I mean, you have this historic, obviously like, you know, like the, the his, history is not just history of ideas, right? I mean, obviously you have like all kinds of stuff going on, like mm -hmm. crucial stuff, um, and collapses and, and, uh, you know, uh, warm periods, ice ages and, and all of that, that sort of thing. And, um, and I think definitely, I mean, that these, these periods that they have some, I mean, maybe not in the exact like dates that are given or maybe even that, I don't know, but, uh, uh there's certainly like historical context to it. And, uh, and the Renaissance, um, it has this nice ring, you know, like people go back to, uh, yeah, the antiquity and rediscover mm -hmm. the Greeks and stuff. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty common feature of certain time periods, right. To, that people just rediscover, past thinkers i mean we are in the middle of something mm -hmm. like that right i mean yeah. all the talk suddenly people are interested in greek philosophy and uh and like uh, rediscovering old thinkers that have been like kind of marginalized uh you know, until recently and and all that sort of thing so it seems to be like pretty pretty common and uh, and probably that there, there was there's some truth you know, to to that um i guess the danger is to uh, if you just put in more and more content, you know, like, or you, uh, you give like this whole narrative um, and it's very neat, right? I mean, if you read on Wikipedia or like in history books, it's just a whole story, you know, that is a coherent, it total, makes total sense, you know, like, oh, and then these guys, you know, they were like stupid Christians, but then they rediscovered Aristotle. And yeah, I mean, Aquinas still was a bit of a stupid Christian, but you know, he, you went into the right direction and uh, and then you had a slightly less stupid christians uh, like descartes and uh, you know like he uh, he, uh, he recognized you know that uh, found modern philosophy that you can actually think for yourself you know blah 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 and and then you have the you know even more like intelligent is okay still slightly stupid christian uh, but uh, yeah, he was he was quite quite advanced actually. Francis Bacon and he invented science, you know, and and then is the end of the Renaissance and modernity and and then the Enlightenment and we were all like uh, emancipating ourselves from like 
authoritarian religion and blah. I mean, it's like, you know, once you get into that sort of like narrative, it's just, um, it's just a myth, you know? I mean, there's obviously some truth to it. I mean, I mean it always needs to be, but it's, it's a story, you know? And, and that's, I, I guess what, where, when you read a bit about the whole early postmodernism that where these guys actually have a point, right. To um, just uh, kind of question these, these stories and, and these myths and, and in, in a quest also to understand where, where they are at the moment, at their moment in history, like how, how these myths um, influence uh, thought and, and what they produce and so on. So, yeah, I guess that's, that's, if you, if you, overdo it you know and uh, then uh yeah it's it can be misleading but also important for a society you know so that's the other thing i mean we all need this myth you know and we may also always have some kind of myth and even and that's something that he points out as well uh, the guy who wrote the myth of disenchantment and that's also a very postmodernist point you know i mean nowadays uh people have forgotten that even like although those who drawn postmodernism because they're totally in their own myth but uh originally um it, it, they, they recognized that you know they themselves even while criticizing this prevailing myth they they're creating a new myth um so it's you kind of cannot escape it right so yeah well i kind wonder of a conundrum. yeah I, and i yeah it's a good question because i don't i don't know how renaissance painters would have classified themselves like i like i recently went to um the Rijksmuseum in amsterdam and they had all of these different high dutch art painters from the same time period who all had similar styles and were developing the same like you know uses of uh paints and lighting and that kind of thing so so there does seem to be that that there are you know these little um, defining characteristics of a movement, but then, you know, do they recognize that themselves as like, I'm joining the movement of Dutch high painting, or is it more like, oh, that's actually really cool. Let me see if I can, you know. Well, at least in the 20th century they did. It's like, okay, I'm a cubist now. It's yeah, like, yeah, 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 no. And that was exactly where I was going with it is because it's the same thing with, yeah, cubism. It's also the same with uh, modern music where, uh -huh. you know, you had rock and roll, uh, and now you have 800 genres. Yeah. yeah. And, and each person. Well, and you know exactly yeah. which genre you're in and which yeah. ones you like. Yeah, exactly. So, how, and you know, how much of that is just a marketing thing? How much it is people wanting yeah. to label themselves and create their own in-group? Um, can you project that onto the past? And how much can you project onto the past about it? You know, again, like, did the high Dutch high up painters know what they were doing? Did they identify as such, or were they all just experimenting, know each other, and learning from each other? And then only, you know, like you're saying, uh, Luke, later on, did people outside of that movement then label them as, you know, this is a, you know, a period where the art world went through this particular phase. Mm -hmm. it's yeah. a it, it's an interesting question you know how it can be all, all of that i guess yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah because it was similar in music too right so you have like you know beethoven was the the <clears throat> the guy between you know the, the one of the last classical 
composers and one of the first romantic composers. And it's like some, some music, music historians and scholars even say, Oh, you know, by his, I can't remember which symphony it is. It's like his first like four symphonies were classical and his last five were romantic, right? It's like, yeah. that's when he, that's when he changed. It's like, there's the moment right there where it changed. <laughs> he joined from classical the new to- club. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but still, so, yeah. but, but still it's like, yeah, there's, there's convent, like conventions and, uh, and shared styles and norms and things that happen. And then you change it a little bit and then, and then like the, there's kind of this, whole the everything that's thrown in flux and then it's like because because really you you can tell the difference between listening to Handel and listening to like schumann or something right it's and and you can and sometimes you might not be able to tell the difference between mozart and and haydn right um at least if you're not like super well trained and know of all of them by heart so there's there's something to be said about like styles and, and groupings and then it's just yeah, how how did they see themselves? And like in the terms of the Renaissance, did they see themselves in ter- in the terms that the people that, or the the one guy that came up with the term Renaissance? It's like, did they see themselves kind of the way he saw them? Um, how how self aware or how how much how much uh, resonance is there between their own self perceptions and the way that they're kind of characterized nowadays as as being part of this larger movement? You know. Yeah, and I think it's it's always a danger to kind of project our modern ways of thinking, you know, on, on these questions, mm-hmm. um, cause who, who's to say, I mean, you would really need to have, do like some really good historical research. And I'm pretty sure some people have done it, you know, and just, um, to just with your example, with the, with the Dutch painters, I mean, someone just, you know, needs to figure out like who, have we any hint, you know, how they saw themselves, who paid them, you know, who, where did they live, uh, with whom did they, you know, write letters and, and did they have like a club, you know? I mean, there, there are mm-hmm. some art movements who like Manifesto. had like formal, yeah, <laughs> had like, I mean, uh, formal like membership and stuff. And some were just, you know, in one city, others were like, um, yeah, so there's all, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. These are interesting questions and, and I think it can, it can go all kinds of ways. And, but you know, to, just to the, to the, to Beethoven, uh, I read somewhere, I think it was um, in this uh, book by Tarukin, something like that, uh, uh, who wrote like the um, Oxford History of Music or something like something like that. It's, it's a great book. And and he actually argues that the, the whole classical period is also just an invention, right? It just, uh, that was like early mm-hmm. romanticism, basically, um, mm-hmm. if, if you want to put a name on it. Um, and then, you know, I'm... Uh, that's also just the name you put retroactive, but it might make more sense. But certainly it's like not that, you know, uh, suddenly, you know, the, the, they all joined the classic classical club you know, or mm-hmm. whatever. It's like, mm-hmm. I mean, they were just in Vienna and uh, kind of, you know, some, some new elements came into it and some new styles developed, you know, that's all. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm throwing out these gems for, for uh youtube creators uh here's so here's another one so another if you do, if you've got a like a comedy sketch you know channel do one about cl- classical composers getting into old-fashioned conflicts and debates about their like mo- the way that we do about modern genres about like you know post grindcore and uh you know like 
like ha- have them be m- like the metal core yes. versus the yes just take that modern aesthetic and put it back with like beethoven and and mozart and stuff and i think i think we could get some gold out of that the you know the contemporary genre debates of the time and uh and beethoven saying like no i'm not x i'm why romantic core, you know, post, post, post class core, romantic <laughs> core. <laughs> A Borekian class classicist. Yeah. We're the people's front of Judea. No, we're the Judean people's exactly, front. Exactly. Same. Yeah. Same flavor. Right. Yes. Monty Python flavor. That'll, that'll do it. Yes. Yeah. Some of those just Monty looking, Python. Yeah. Just, just really, some of these Monty Python stuff actually happened in later like art movements and stuff. I I, I read like it's been a while, like a, a Substack I think that got into some nice details about it. And uh, so where basically it's, it's like literally like uh, oh we split off, you know, like and then we split off from the splitters and <laughs> we found our own magazine, you know, where we promote our style. And you are kicked out, you know, it's like, uh, all that stuff. <laughs> All right, we're just getting silly. Maybe we should wrap up. <laughs> what do you say? Yeah, that's a good idea. Okay. So yeah, I, I I have the honor of uh, of hosting today. So I gotta uh, mm-hmm. uh, end on on follow, a positive note. Forms. So, yeah, we we we've been lazy, but uh, we also um, uh, have read some stuff and. Uh, had a pretty pretty nice uh, discussion uh, about uh, all kinds of things, right? I mean, that's that was the plan. No, mm-hmm. I think it went really well. So, thanks again, uh, everyone, and uh, to our listeners and viewers, and uh, hopefully we'll be back very soon uh, mm-hmm. with another hot topic. So, thanks yes, again, we and will. Uh, yeah. See you soon. And we'll have Goodbye. interviews too. Oh yeah, you have, have, yeah. Do we have anything lined up? We don't have, have anything specific those? lined up, but we've so nothing to announce. But we will be doing interviews, and uh, that's all we can say at the moment. So, uh, yeah, we'll have a, a whole year, a whole rest of the year of, of great <laughs> content, including special <laughs> guests. So, yeah, look forward to that. <laughs> all right, excellent. See you guys. Okay. See you guys.